Before we get into our passage for today, I wanted to just take a moment and just pray about what all the things that are going on in the world uh, and just acknowledge that there's a lot of people suffering right now. So before we dig into our passage, let me just take a moment to pray. Um, Our Father, we uh, want to say, how long, O Lord? How long? Uh, Lord, how long will there be suffering? Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, what is happening in Israel and in Gaza right now. Lord, we pray uh, specifically against acts of terror. We pray against those who would want to harm or hurt people. And Lord, we want to ask you and beg you for peace. Uh, Lord, we know that um, you are sovereign over all things, that you hold all things together. And Lord, while we don't understand um, why things like this would happen, uh, Lord, we want to acknowledge that your ways are much higher than ours. And so, Lord, we do ask you, though, Lord, please would you bring peace. Please would you bring comfort. Please would you bring an end to conflict. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's not quite ready yet, but our, our church is part of a, a denomination, a network of churches, and sometime this week they've told me they're going to be uh, releasing some information on ways that uh, churches and individuals can be supporting um, and helping uh, with the efforts that are going on in Israel. So watch your email for that. We'll have some information coming out on that in the next uh, few days. So, all right, pause on that. Let's move on to the sermon now. So we are in the last week of a series called The Well-Worn Path. And uh, what we're talking about in this is our liturgy. And a liturgy, by the way, it's just it's an order of worship. It's sort of how you go through the process of worship. Very simply put, it's actually the way that we set our hearts and our minds on God so that we can become spiritually mature in Christ. And the way that we go about our liturgy here at Christ Church is, is based on a couple of things. Uh, one, it's based on a biblical pattern. Joy's already uh, referred to it this morning, that you see this, this pattern all over Scripture. And then secondly, based on that pattern in Scripture, uh, faithful Christians have actually followed that pattern for nearly two millennia. And so it's both a biblical thing and a church history thing. Uh, And so our liturgy is a well-worn path. It's a well-worn path that faithful people have walked for two millennia. And uh, it's the way that we become spiritually mature. And then our spin on it, which again, Joy mentioned, but to keep it memorable, uh, we use four words. We talk about these four postures. It's up, down, up, and out. Uh, drawn on paper, it looks like this next slide here. Uh, that's what it looks like. And so that throne that's there, that's us looking up. That's worshiping God who's seated on a throne in all of his glory, all of his holiness. And then the arrow that goes down uh, is down to confess and to lament and bring our petitions before God. And then the arrow that goes up is us being raised up with Christ in the good news of the gospel. And then finally, that arrow that goes out over the top uh, is that we are sent out to share verbally about Christ and to live like him in the world. So up, down, up, and out. And it's a lifetime of walking that well-worn path uh, that actually looks like this next drawing. So you just see it, and we just do this over and over and over and over again. And the more we do it, the more we become like Christ. And that's the whole idea of this series. And each week what we've done is we've looked more deeply into one of these four postures. And this week is the last one in the series. And so we're looking at out, being sent out to share verbally about Christ and to live like him in the world. And when we started the series, I shared a quote from a Japanese theologian uh, named Kasuki Kiyama. And I think it 
what he says sort of sums up the nature or the speed with which we should walk this well-worn path. And so Kiyama wrote an essay called The Three Mile an Hour God. And in it, in this essay, he's making this point that throughout the Bible, when God takes people from one place to another, um, they're always walking. And so think of Abraham walking the perimeter of the promised land or Joseph being dragged off to Egypt or Moses and the Israelites wandering the desert. Or you can think of Jesus wandering around Galilee or traveling through Samaria down to Jerusalem and back. All of, the, all of these are walking. All these journeys are by foot. And what Kiyama points out is that the average speed a person walks is three miles an hour. And so what he argues then is that the God of the Bible is a three mile an hour God. And here's what he said in his essay, in case you missed it, um, way back when we started this. He says, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from which the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, whether we are currently hit by storm or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore it is the speed the love of God walks three miles an hour by the three mile an hour God. And I love that because our culture wants you to move fast. Our culture wants us to be self-absorbed, self-righteous, to be consumers, to quickly amass as much as we can. And instead, what we've been thinking about over the past month and a half or so is what if a group of people right in the center of Los Angeles, the, the, the place, the city that preaches self-absorption and fast-paced living more than any other place on earth, what if some people in that city slowed down and curated a sort of counter-liturgy to the one that our culture is giving us? And what if we committed to slowing down and walking the well-worn path of this liturgy daily and weekly and doing it slowly at the pace of three miles an hour? Just imagine the impact on your life. Imagine the impact on your family's life and on our city. I mentioned this again when we started the series as well, but someone once commented to me that our church is like slow church. And I like that. I, I actually really like that. A three mile an hour church, walking with God at the pace of his love, three miles an hour. And the way that we're choosing to do that as a church and as individuals within that church is to walk this well-worn path of up, down, up, and out, day by day, week by week, and then to do it together for months and months and years and years to do that together. And as we look today at this final posture of our liturgy, as we look at, at what it is to be sent out, we're going to look at the time when Jesus very intentionally renamed his followers. Literally, he, he, he renamed them this, those who are sent, sent ones, those who are sent out. And so we're going to look at this uh, idea of being sent out in three parts. Part one, the pattern. Part two, the naming. And then part three, the going. So the pattern, the naming, and the going. Uh, and as we do that, keep your finger in Mark chapter 3, because we're going to dig into that passage in part 2. But first, let's just look at part 1, the pattern. Um, so years ago, Emmy and I were uh, visiting. She has some family that live in, in Italy, and so for Christmas, we went to visit them. It was like our big Christmas gift to ourselves that year was to go and visit them. And uh, we flew into Venice and spent uh, Christmas Eve there in Venice, and then Christmas Day, we took the train down to see her family. And so Christmas Eve, I'm like, hey, I want to go to the big cathedral for the midnight mass. And so we get ourselves, you know, all psyched up to go to midnight mass at St. Mark's 
Cathedral right in the big square in Venice. And uh, if you know me, you know that I'm not a late night person. Like I, the last time I saw midnight, I don't know. Um, you know, eight o'clock is like midnight for me. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna need some coffee or some espresso or something if I'm gonna stay up late enough to like go to this mass. And so uh, there's a thing in Italy called aperitivo hour. It's sort of where the idea of happy hour came from. And, uh, and so you go to aperitivo hour and mostly people are ordering drinks like, you know, a beer or wine or some kind of cocktail or something. And you can go to any cafe, any restaurant, anywhere and they do this aperitivo thing. And so we go into this one cafe and they've got uh, all the, so aperitivo is like all these free snacks. So order a drink and you get a free snack and you can have as many of them as you want. It's great, I love it. And so we go into this one, but I'm like, oh, well, you know, I gotta stay up late, so I need to get myself some coffee. And so I go up to the counter and I'm like, I'd like one espresso, please. And they bring me an espresso. And I take a sip of my espresso and I put it down and then I reach for a salty snack and I eat the salty snack and there's a woman standing next to me in this really crowded place and she goes, <gasps> Oh, con espresso. And she like crosses herself like I've done some sort of demonic thing and she's like trying to keep the evil away. And to do this on Christmas Eve at all times is the worst you could possibly do it. Now what that tells you is that there's a sort of order to how you do things there, right? So if you go to aperitivo hour, you do not have coffee and salty snacks. That is like a no-no. There's a certain order, a certain pattern, a certain way of doing things. And these passages that we've looked at over the last five weeks, they've shown us actually that there is a general order, a general pattern for what it should look like to not only encounter God, but to live like him in the world. There's an order to it. And you could broadly summarize it this way. Um, first, it's to, to be with God. And then second, it's to be sent out by God and to bring others back to him. To be with God, to be sent out by God. And even our four-part liturgy actually follows this pattern uh, and I love this. So if you can't remember four things, up, down, up, and out, maybe you can remember two things, with God and sent out. Uh, but the up, down, and up, that part of our liturgy is, is what it looks at. It helps us to be with God. We worship him. We confess. He raises us up in the, with Christ. That's what it is to be with him. And then part four is being sent out. And so let me just show you this briefly in Scripture. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, all four, four parts of our liturgy are very obvious in that passage. Isaiah is brought near to God. He is with God in the heavenly throne room. And as he is with God, as he's near him, he begins by looking up to worship and then down to confess. And then God, in his mercy, raises him up by atoning for his sins from the altar, right? So there you have it, up, down, and up. That's right there in Isaiah chapter 6. And then finally, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, it says this. We can put this on the screen. Uh, and this is where it shifts to this last posture about. This is Isaiah speaking. He says, Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And then God tells him to go, and he gives him a message to proclaim. That's the same pattern that happened with Moses when he met God in the burning bush. Literally the exact same pattern. I remember when Joshua met the commander of the Lord of the army before he uh, went into the battle of Jericho. It's the same pattern. It's repeated in Ezekiel chapter one and two. It's the same pattern when the apostle John meets the risen Christ in Revelation chapter one. It's all over scripture. And in each instance, a person draws near to God goes through those postures of up, down, and being raised back up, and then finally, God then sends them out. 
And so in summary, the pattern is with God in order to be sent out by God. That's the pattern. It's like when I was in high school and I played on the basketball team. Every day during the season, uh, we'd have practice after school. And so we'd show up uh, to the gym after school and we'd practice all the skills necessary, you know, shooting and dribbling and rebounding and passing and defense, and we'd rehearse our plays over and over until they became second nature to us. But if that's all we did, that's incomplete, isn't it? Like, you don't just go to practice. Um, It's incomplete. You need the other part of that. And so the reason that we went to practice is because every Tuesday and Friday night, we play a game. And so we take all the things we practiced, and then on Tuesday night and Friday night, we put them to use. But also, if you only played the game, that's incomplete as well. You need both things. Uh, And so only playing the game was incomplete as well. And so uh, after the next day after a game, what would happen? We'd go to practice, and usually the coach would yell at us for all the things that we did wrong. But we'd take time to improve on those things where we fell short. And being totally transparent, the falling short usually had to do with me. Uh, It was usually I was the one who got chewed out. Mostly just for being slow. But wherever we fell short, you know, if we kept messing up certain plays or we stumbled with certain skills, we'd work on that the next day of practice. And also things that we did well, we would, uh, we'd reinforce those things, and so we'd become better at those things. But it was always the two things working together. Being with our coaches in practice and then being sent out to the games. And then you'd come back the next day with our coaches in practice and then you'd be sent out to another game, and you do that day after day, week after week. And that's the pattern. With God, and then sent out by God. With God, sent out by God. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And so this is the well-worn path at its most simple level. With God, sent out by God. And then again, with God again, sent out by God again. Day after day, week after week. For year after year. That's the pattern. And so I hope you can see now as we draw this series to a close that this is why we're asking everyone in the church to make it a priority to gather together weekly. Actually, being here uh, is important. It's important for us to, to be with God in order to be sent out by God. That's the whole pattern that God has created for us. And at the start of the series, I challenge you to make a, the decision today that Sunday morning is for gathering together with the church. And rather than making the decision Saturday night or Sunday morning, based on how you're feeling, make the decision now that Sunday morning is for gathering with the church, for being with God as we walk this well-worn path together. I said this last week, and I'll say it again today because I think it's that important. There is no such thing as a spiritually mature person who is not meaningfully connected to a local church. The Bible does not leave that category open to us. It is not a category that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. In fact, what you'll find is things like, do not give up meeting together as long as it is today, lest some of you fall fall away. And so there's no such thing as an individual Christian or individual Christian family apart from the church that is spiritually mature. That just does not exist. And so that's the pattern, being with in order to be sent. It's also why uh, we've encouraged you uh, to do a daily devotional along with us. Uh, some of you have that. If you don't have that, um, there is about 25 of us right now that are going day by day through a devotional where we're actually walking through these postures daily. We're praying, uh, we're reading scripture, we're praying again, and we're being sent out. 
Uh, if you don't have one of those daily devotionals, uh, you can write that on your connection card and just write devotional on it. I will order you one and I will deliver it to you personally. That's how important I think this is. That we are not only the kind of church that gathers together to be with God and be sent out, but that we're also the kind of individuals that do that day by day by day. Sent out. Drawn in, sent out. With God, sent out. So that's the pattern. That pattern is all over scripture. That pattern is all over church history. And we're just enacting it in 2023 in Los Angeles. So that's the pattern. But let's look at it a little bit more closely now where Jesus himself intentionally works out this pattern uh, with his, 12, his first 12 followers. So this is part two, the naming. Uh, and this is where you'll want to make sure that you still have Mark chapter three open. And uh, I'll just tell you right off the bat, one of the main themes in these verses actually has to do with naming, with giving names. Um, and uh, we used to live in Liverpool, England. And uh, when I first moved there, a friend of mine had this map uh, up in her house. And it was all the neighborhoods of the city and all the surrounding towns and other cities around. But it didn't have their actual names. Uh, so like, you know, there's a neighborhood called the Georgian Quarter and a neighborhood called Baltic Triangle. It didn't have those names. It had the nicknames of all those areas. And so uh, looking at this map, one really struck out to me that across the river, there's a city called Birkenhead. Uh, which is a funny name in and of itself, uh, but it had a, its own nickname, and the nickname was the One-Eyed City. And I was always intrigued. Why is it the One-Eyed City? What is this One-Eyed City thing, you know? And so I just, nobody ever knew. I kept asking people, nobody, nobody knew. And I finally was on a train one day, and the guy sitting across from me, I struck up a conversation with him, and, uh, and it turns out he's from Birkenhead. And I was like, oh, I've always had a question about Birkenhead. Why is it called the One-Eyed City? And he knew. And so here's the story. Uh, he goes, you know, Birkenhead used to be one of the shipbuilding capitals of the world. Like all these steel ships uh, that were rolling off the, into the ocean in the you know, late 1800s to the early 1900s, all of them were made either in Belfast or in Birkenhead. And, uh, and so he said what would happen is when they started doing these, uh, putting these steel plates together with steel rivets, you'd have guys putting the rivets in, and sometimes the rivets wouldn't take. And so the rivet would pop out and hit them in the eye. And so he said, uh, so what you had is in the like, early 1900s, basically a bunch of men with just one eye walking around the city. And so that's why it's called the One-Eyed City. A name can tell you a lot about a place. A name can tell you a lot about a person. It tells you a lot about the character of something or the history of something. And names, they have a lot to do with uh, this place where Jesus introduces the pattern of being with God in order to be sent out. Uh, but before we get to those names, just here's the pattern again. Verse 13, uh, if you still have that open, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out. And so again, there's that pattern uh, in verse 14. He calls them that they might be with him and that he might send them out. And so there's the pattern. But right in the middle of that pattern, this, this is where the naming takes place. And if you look close at verse 14, you should see a little footnote there, a little letter A, uh, where it says he appointed 12. After that word 12, you see that little footnote in there? Is that in your Bible? Um, the footnote, if you look down at the bottom of the page, it says that some ancient manuscripts say uh, that it, it would say he appointed the 12, designating them apostles. And that word designating, it's actually the word named he named them. And so what that means is he gave this group of 12 a name. He called them apostles, which actually literally means sent ones, those who are sent out. Uh, and so whatever their identity was before, fishermen, 
tax collector, accountant, politician, whatever it was, they now had a new name, apostle, sent one. And not only that, but did you notice that Jesus actually reaches into their individual lives? That he specifically renames three of them. Uh, he goes on, uh, goes to Simon and he renames him Peter, which means rock. You see that? And then a little bit later, he goes to James and John and he renames them the sons of thunder. And so that's the theme of this paragraph, that Jesus is renaming the 12 men that he called to be with him. And so why does he do that? Well, all through the Bible, naming someone or something, it actually has a shaping power to it. Uh, a name could shape who or what someone becomes. And so in the Bible, naming is an act of authority. So like if you gave something or someone a name, it means that you have authority over it. And so for instance, when uh, God, remember all the naming in Genesis? And God tells Adam, he gives him authority over all of creation to look after it, to develop it, to shape it. And then what does he do? He sends him out on a mission to name all the living creatures, right? Or do you remember when Daniel and his friends were, were captive uh, off to Babylon? And they all get renamed by the king. That's a position of authority. And so if you name something or someone, it means you have authority. Now, maybe you think that idea is sort of outdated, right? Like, okay, names don't have that kind of power. But actually, they do. Uh, when I was growing up, my siblings gave me a nickname, and I hated that name. And I still hate that name. Uh, do you want to know what the name is? Here, I'll put it on, on the screen for you. Um, there it is for you. Did you think I was actually going to tell you? I was never going to tell you. Because if I told you the name, then you would have power over me. You would have shaming power over me. Um, or in a more positive light, you can say, oh, good, you did take it down. I don't want anyone figuring it out. Um, in a more positive light, uh, if there's someone who you really love, like a spouse or a child or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a dog or whatever, it's likely you have a nickname for them. And that nickname reveals the depth of your relationship. And actually, like, they wouldn't let somebody else call them that, right? That name actually shapes who they become. It shapes the nature of their relationship with you. Now, there is a limit when it comes to you and I naming someone or something. Uh, you know, some of you, when you named your children, you picked a strong name because you wanted them to grow up nice and strong, or an intelligent-sounding name because you wanted them to be intelligent, or a beautiful name because you wanted them to grow up and be beautiful. But very often, they don't, right? That happens. You know, my name is Ken. I'm just a Ken. Anywhere else, I'd be a 10, okay? <laughs> and so our efforts to, to name, they often come up short. But not so with God. Because God has ultimate naming power. He has the power to shape someone. It's an act of authority. And so when we get to this mountaintop where Jesus calls the 12 followers to be with him, he renames them. And he renames them with all the authority of the author of creation entering into the story with an eraser to erase their old name and give them a new one. In other words, to reshape them. And what he does with the 12, he can do with you. Whatever their old life was, he was reshaping them. And he reshapes them in a couple of different ways. Did you notice this new life that he calls them to in verses 14 and 15? It says he appointed them, the 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And the first way that he's, his renaming shapes them is that they are now to be with him. That is part of their identity now. 
And very practically speaking, he was calling them to be his close inner circle of followers. That these were to be the 12 who would go everywhere with him, who he would teach, who he would train, so that they could one day go out and have their own ministry. And remember that Jesus isn't just trying to shape them intellectually. He's not just trying to give them some ideas. There's a sense here that to be with him is to become like him. To be so close to someone like this, to follow them around, to be with them day by day by day, you end up becoming like that person. And we need to think about that for our own lives, that the more we spend, more time we spend with Jesus, the more time in his presence, praying with his people in his word, the more we do that, the more we take on the resemblance of Christ. The second way Jesus renaming Shapes of Twelve is that they're to go out. It says they go out to do two things. One, to preach, and the second, sounds a little bit terrifying, but it's to drive out demons. Uh, But ultimately what that's getting at is saying they're going to go out and do the same kinds of things that he can do. So he's been out preaching, he's been out casting out demons, so they're going to do the same kinds of things that he can do. And so renaming not only gives them a new identity, but in this case it also gives them a new vocation. In fact, the whole future of God's kingdom on earth actually hangs on these 12 men. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Jesus, the author of creation, he could have called any 12 people he wanted to be with him and to send them out. And he calls these 12. I don't know if you picked up on that, but in verse 13, it says that he called to him those whom he wanted. He could have called anybody. He called them. And if I'm honest, I find it surprising that Jesus calls these 12 young men because they are not the creme de la creme. They're tradesmen and traders, and none of them are mighty, none of them are wise, some are overly arrogant, some are pretty dense. And yet it says that he wanted them. They were his choice. And though this might be a surprising calling, it's important because many today, you know, if if somebody is here and somebody's interested in Christianity, you might feel like you can't become a Christian because you don't feel worthy. And many, maybe some of you who are Christians, maybe also feel like you couldn't possibly be used by God because you're ordinary or because you have a past. But just think with me for a minute about a few of these 12 men. These 12 men who are ordinary, and all of them have a past, by the way. Uh, Later on in Mark chapter 8, Peter actually tries to rebuke Jesus. Do you know what Jesus calls him? Satan. At the end of Jesus' life, Peter is uh, confronted, and someone's like, hey, you're one of the people with him. And and in Jesus' hour of his greatest need, Peter totally denies him and says, I never knew him. Or what about James and John? This is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. They're on a visit to a town in Samaria, and the the village uh, rejects them. And James and John are like, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And then, of course, Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus for a bag of silver. That's a whole third of the apostles. (laughs) One third of them. Not one of them is worthy to climb this mountain to be with Jesus. Not one of them. And as I was thinking about this this week, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 24, which is one of the passages we read in our day-by-day devotional recently. 
And in Psalm 24, verse 3, it says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And so who can ascend the mountain? Only the righteous. Only the one who's worthy to ascend. And the truth is, not one of these 12 men that Jesus calls to be with him are worthy. And yet it says that Jesus wanted them. He called to him those whom he wanted. And in his great mercy and his wonderful grace, he invites them to the mountain to be with them. He renames them. He gives them not only a new purpose in life, but he gives them a new identity. And that can be true for every single one of us. Because the truth is, of course, you're not worthy. None of us are. No one can ascend the mountain. Yet Jesus Christ, in his great mercy and his wonderful grace, he's calling even you to come and to be with him. And when you come, you get a new name as well. You get his name. Because now you're called a Christian. Christian, it just literally means little Christ. And of course, being with God and being sent out by God, it's actually the pattern of Christ himself. And so every time we go through this pattern of being with God and being sent out, we are being little Christ's. We're enacting exactly what he did. Because think about this, for all of eternity past, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is with God the Father and with God the Spirit, dwelling together with one another in the heavenly throne room. But then at Christmas 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ is sent out. He came down. And why did he do that? It was to come to us. It was to rescue us from the wages of our sin. That in his sending, in his being sent out, Jesus Christ paid for our sins by dying an excruciating death. And he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again and he ascended to the throne room of heaven. So now he is with God the Father, with God the Spirit, in the heavenly throne room. But do you know what the scripture says about him? That he's going to come again. With God sent out. With God sent out. It's a very pattern of the life of Jesus. And that's the reason this pattern is all over Scripture, because the very pattern of the life of Jesus Christ himself. And every time you and I enact that pattern through daily worship, through weekly worship, through being with God in prayer and in his word, being with God and his people, and then being sent out to verbally share about Christ and to live like him in the world, every time we do that, we are little Christ's. Sent ones. And that leads us to part three, the going. Now, this is just going to be utterly practical and pretty quick, but the the question about going then is what does it look like for us, specifically Christ Church Los Angeles, and the individuals with our church to be sent out? Uh, Some of our leadership got together this past spring and summer, and we were attempting to answer that question. What specifically do we think that God has called our church and the individuals within our church to be and to do in this time and place, in the 2020s in Northeast Los Angeles. And here's what we came up with. Um, I think this, there's a slide for this. That God rooted CCLA in the heart of Atwater Village to see the gospel renew our church, our neighborhood, and our city. Now, on the one hand, that seems kind of obvious, right? That is what a church should be focused on. But do you know what's built into that? 
being with God and being sent out by God. We're rooted in the heart of Atwater Village to see the gospel renew our church. That's being with God. That we gather together to be renewed, to be with God. In order that we would what? Be sent out to our neighborhood and to our city. And so on the one hand, it seems obvious, but on the other hand, we need to remind ourselves of this again and again and again and again. Because without being mindful, without some mindfulness around this, we could easily drift into all sorts of things. So this is what we believe God's called us to be and to do, a church that is with God, being renewed by the gospel, and then going out and sharing that good news with our neighborhood and our city. Now, just very specifically over the next few months, not, let's not even think about the next few years, let's just think about the next few months. What does it look like for us to be sent out between now and the end of the year? So the next two and a half months. Um, and here are three ways that we can be sent out to live this calling. Uh, number one, I mentioned it earlier in the announcements, is Halloween. Now, why are we giving out candy? Is it because we want to be part of, you know, some sort of demon worshiping in the neighborhood? <laughs> no. That's not why we're doing it. Are we doing it because some of us really want to dress up as a Mario character? Well, maybe. <laughs> but the real reason we're doing it is because we love this neighborhood. And we love the people that live in this neighborhood. And we believe that God has called us specifically here to this time and this place. That God has preserved this place for 100 years. That in 2023, on October 31st, we would meet 500 neighbors. That's what we're doing on Halloween. And so that's one way we can be sent out. We can just love our neighbors by giving them way too much candy and letting them take some fun photographs. Uh, number two, um, we're going to sort of designate, I think, a few months out of the year um, as months where we're sent out. And so we're going to designate the month of November as a month where we are sent out as a church. And what I mean by that is sometime in November, I'll have more information on this as we get closer to November, but sometime in November, I want to encourage everybody who calls Christchurch their home to have one conversation with one person about their faith. That we commit to doing that in the month of November. Why? Because the pattern is to be with God and then to be sent out. And so we want to live that pattern as a church. Uh, and so we'll have a month of November where we're sent out. And then the third thing is Christmas. Christmas is one of the best opportunities in the year to invite people to come to church. And there's two opportunities to do that. One is on December 2nd, we're going to be having uh, a Christmas carol uh, service here uh, with food. So I think it'll be tacos from home state, uh, as well as all your favorite Christmas carols. There's going to be a ukulele group as well that are going to be playing. Like, it's going to be great. And it's the kind of thing you want to invite your friend to. Um, and so we can be sent out to invite our friends to that. And then, of course, Christmas Eve is a Sunday this year. And so that Christmas Eve morning, we'll have a, another service, another time where we'll sing Christmas carols and be able to let people know about the goodness of Jesus. And so those are three ways that we can live this out. We gather together daily and weekly to be with God, and then God sends us out. And so we're going to do that on Halloween. We're going to do that in November. We're going to do that for Christmas. Now, as we wrap this whole series up, I want you to just remember what we're trying to do. But better than that, actually, remember who, we're, who it is we're trying to become. We want to become spiritually mature. We want to both be a, a, a collective church community that is spiritually mature and individuals within that church being spiritually mature. And the way that we're trying to do that and the way that we've set this out for, from now until Jesus comes back in our church 
is to slow down, is to walk the well-worn path of this long obedience in the same direction towards spiritual maturity and to do it together. And that well-worn path is to look up to worship, down to confess, be raised up with Christ and the good news of the gospel, and then sent out to share about him and to live like him in the world. And we do that at a slow walk, at the pace of God at three miles an hour. Um, Eugene Peterson in his memoirs, it's a book called The Pastor, he talked in there about the influence of the writings of Baron Frederick von Hugel. And one of the statements that von Hugel wrote that profoundly influenced uh, both Eugene and his wife uh, was just a short, simple statement. Uh, and I love this. Uh, Nothing was ever accomplished in a stampede. <laughs> and I like it. I like thinking about that as a church because just think about our culture. Everything's a stampede. We're stampeding towards everything. And instead of running along in the stampede of our culture that is rushing around from novel new idea to new idea, or from judgment to judgment, or from fear to fear, Nothing was ever accomplished in a stampede. And instead of the stampede, the slow three mile an hour walk with God along the well-worn path, that long obedience in the same direction towards spiritual maturity, that's who we're trying to be. And that's what I want for myself, that's what I want for you, that's what I want for Christ Church Los Angeles, that's what I want for our neighborhood, that's what I want for our city. And so as we wrap this whole thing up, let's do that together. Up, down, up, and out. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that Jesus Christ, the pattern is that he is with you for all eternity and he was sent out. And that he's with you now and that he's coming again. And Lord, help us to live that pattern day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And in doing that, Lord, may, may you bring us all to maturity in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.